It's getting full up here. For those of you who may not have been with us long, it wasn't long ago at all that we didn't even have live music, and we're thankful so much for those who serve and give of their talents and their gifts in that way to, to lead us in worship. So we, we thank you for that and for the opportunity just to, to join together in worship and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and to begin orienting ourselves as we prepare for the study of God's Word this morning. We've been going through a study here at the beginning of the year on church leadership. And what the Bible expects, what God expects of those who would lead His church, His shepherds. I was looking at uh, pastoral job postings this week. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. I was curious, what do churches, just in general, what are they looking for? I thought I'd share a few of those things with you and how it's described. One posting said our preferred candidate will be 35 to 45 years old seminary graduate who preaches well, willing to work with the philosophical and theological framework of the denomination, non-reformed in their theology, but not anti-reformed in their theology. Not quite sure what that means. Able to effectively lead was another one. Coordinate and evaluate ministry leaders in the church. Able to motivate and inspire a congregation into action. A passion for children's ministries. A commitment to the church's vision, their mission, and bylaws. Notice it didn't say to Scripture's vision, mission, and bylaws, but to the church's. Hopefully they're one and the same. There were others that said cast vision and purpose, innovate and create, develop and equip, motivate, think strategically, have a biblical worldview, someone who works well with others, trustworthy, a good communicator, Expository as well as topical preaching. Leads others well. Visionary, lifelong learner, action-oriented. The list goes on. There were some that had maybe qualifications that we would expect a bit more. And, and to be fair, most of these postings had at least a hat tip to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 saying, and by the way, they'll have these qualifications too. But the emphasis in these postings, the amount of words spent were not in those areas. It was on these lists of things. You begin to see, even though these are not bad things, in fact, many of them by themselves can be very good things, but the manner in which they are emphasized is, I believe, one of the reasons the church is in the state it is in today. We've slapped some religious terminology on a lot of these things, but at the end of the day, many churches today are looking not for the type of shepherd and leader Scripture defines, but for one that looks like the world around us. As we noted at the start of this study a few weeks ago, the church has fallen into the trap of Old Testament Israel, who wanted a king like the nations around them. And that's not what the church should be looking for. Not for the leaders of the businesses, the organizations, and the world around them, but rather what does God want in a leader. We value visionaries, we value those who seem powerful, who seem strong, seeming to have forgotten the words of Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians where he says God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those that are strong. Well, we want to know what God wants in his leaders. So that's why we've begun this study, that's why we continue this study this morning. 
join with me if you would as we pray and open up our time together. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, though cold morning as we come together to worship together, to fellowship, being able to do that around the hope that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. What a precious treasure it is to be able to worship with those who call upon his name, who have tasted of the forgiveness that is offered at the cross. Pray that our time this morning would be edifying. It would also exhort, it would convict, rebuke us where necessary. But that our heart and all of this would be to humble ourselves, to commit ourselves to obedience is one of the clearest and simplest demonstrations of our love for you, for the grace that has been shown to us. Not out of a legalistic obligation, but out of our deep love. Let that be the motivation behind wanting to serve and honor and follow you. We want to follow you carefully as we consider leadership here at Canton Bible Church. So consider new leaders, existing leaders, that we want leaders who honor you, that follow you in the pattern you've laid out in Scripture. Help us to do that hard work. Help us to lay aside our personal preferences and to seek your kingdom, your word, your desires above all else. Amen. Well, we'll be spending most of our time this morning in 1 Timothy as we look at this list of leadership qualities, a quick excursion to Titus here and there. You may have already bookmarked these, like I encourage you to do last week as we flip back and forth between these texts. We looked last week at the calling and the desire of a shepherd of the church. And again, as a reminder, it's not one who is looking for a place of authority, a place of prominence. If, in fact, if that is the motivation of a leader or a shepherd of a church, then they're immediately disqualified. It's not someone who sets out to lead the way the world leads. Scripture's standard is a leader who desires to serve, to serve by ministering to the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs of the body who feeds and protects through the teaching of Scripture and the application of Scripture. Immediately after Paul's description of this desire to shepherd in 1 Timothy 3.1, we immediately find the qualifications of a shepherd. This is where I'll remind you again, we're going to put on our shepherd glasses. This is the framework through which we want to view all of these qualifications as, as a shepherd that we looked at in the first week. Again, this list we find, whether it be 1 Timothy 3, whether it be Titus 1, whether it be 1 Peter 5, these are not exhaustive lists. These are actually the bare minimum qualifications you should look for in your leaders and your elders. And again, no person is going to perfectly embody every one of these characteristics. But, as we noted, and this is extremely important, a leader must not be wholly deficient in any one area either. He must demonstrate to some level all of these qualities, all of these characteristics, and must be seeking to grow and mature in all of them. And the extent to which they are on display or they are displayed or a person will display these qualifications is going to vary. They cannot be lacking or without any of these characteristics. 
but demonstrating that effort and that diligence to grow in all areas and humbly receive feedback. So then Paul moves into what are these qualifications. He begins to zoom in, if you will. So what we're really doing, if you're thinking of it as a microscope, we've put put the leader under the microscope. First of all, they need to have the desire, and then we're going to start zooming in, and you'll see it getting more and more specific as we work through this list. The first qualification is rather broad. It's above reproach. Now, quick question. When's the last time you used the word reproach? I'm guessing it's been a little while. So let's define it. It means to be free of any offensive or disgraceful blight of character. To be above reproach is to be free of any offensive or disgraceful blight of character. Specifically, godly character, that which Scripture lays out. You see how this is a little bit more broad. It's a little bit more of a catch-all with regard to the discussion of a leader. And it's important to remember this, again, is not perfection. The character of a person refers to their continual and their habitual action. We talk about the characteristics of a person. That's what they're used, we use, are used to seeing them do because this describes the character of a person. The question is, not is a leader perfect, but what does the regular habitual pattern of their life look like? Is it one of godliness or is it one of ungodliness, one that would fall and not be above reproach? The two questions we need to ask are this, is there any pattern of sin or any repeated sin we see in one who is called a leader or considered for leadership? Secondly, how do they respond to sin when it doesn't rise? Are they quick to repent and to change and to seek to change and to grow? In a leader, you want one. In a shepherd, you want someone who readily acknowledges their sin and shortcomings, who repents and continues to grow so that the accusation of being one characterized by sin or the negative side effects of these characteristics, that accusation can't stick to them. This description of a leader belongs here at the beginning because as Chrysostom, that ancient pastor of the early church, noted every virtue is implied by this word. Every godly virtue is implied by being above reproach. It addresses any godly character quality. It really ties in the fruit of the Spirit. It's everything, whether or not it's explicitly enumerated in the characteristics of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The concept of irreproachable character seems obvious. You want your leaders to have good character. Even the world wants this. Now, they may get sloppy on the application of it, sometimes very much so, but they want someone that's got at least somewhat good character. I mean, there's only so many scandals they'll tolerate. But it's so obvious, I wonder how often we stop and ask why. Why is this important? We know it's important, but why is it important, especially in the church? There's at least two reasons. There's probably a lot more. Big picture, though, one of, one of them is that the Christian community is continually under attack, under accusation, under scrutiny from unbelievers. 1 Peter 3, 16 through 17, keep a good conscience, so the thing in which they, that is the world, slanders you, they may, on account of your good behavior, as they observe it, as they observe your good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame. 
For it is better, Peter says, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And leaders are a great target for attacks because their head's above the trenches. They're the most noticeable. And in addition, if they can make the accusation stick against a leader, more often than not, the damage is much has a much further reach, a much greater impact. And so the goal, the responsibility of the church is to only put men in place who in the face of these attacks have, as Jack Hughes will say, Teflon character. Nothing sticks to them. That's what we want from our leaders. A character, a habitual pattern to where someone says, yeah, I've seen that once. He repented of it and it's not a habit. It's not a pattern. Those type of accusations don't stick. There's no real weight to them. The second reason looks a little more inward or instead of looking outward at the world and defensively, maybe the second one we could say is a little more offensive. Second reason is with regard to the body of Christ, leaders are to set an example to be followed. Hebrews 13.7, we read this morning, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, and then imitate their faith. Follow them. And so this quality of being above reproach identifies the type of leader that should be followed, that should be copied. When you're getting ready to make a copy of something, you don't grab a messy, flawed-up original to try and make more copies. You try to find the cleanest version you can and then copy that. A leader is to call others to emulate and follow their pattern of life. When choosing a shepherd and a leader of the church, you need to ask, I need to ask, we all need to be asking, is this a life that I want to copy? One not marred with unrepentant sin. One that will help me look more and more like the great shepherd. Well, Paul begins to get more specific. What does this life look like that is above reproach? Well, it's the husband of one wife. I like how simple Paul's statement is. He must be a man of one woman. It's that simple. There's no other Woman, you go to in confidence for emotional support or for physical affection. You delight in the wife of your youth. You cultivate that relationship above all other earthly relationships, male and especially female. Failing to be a one-woman man, by the way, is more than just a physical relationship. In case that's not clear, Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a lump woman with lust for her has already committed the adultery in his heart. This one woman man, this concept of being fully given to your spouse is a mental, emotional, and physical pledge. It's a determined and constant commitment to be devoted to your wife. Practically, this love and devotion may itself be a reason for waiting or saying no to a man. What do I mean by that? Well, if a wife needed extra care such that his ability or time to shepherd the church is significantly affected, then he may need to forego being an elder or step down for a time from being an elder to care for her. It's a further demonstration of that love and that commitment to his wife. Because the call of a shepherd, it demands time, it demands effort but not at the neglect of these other important things, specifically a wife here. 
So the man, man that we're looking for, the shepherd we're looking for, if he is married, he is a one-woman man. I do not believe here that it requires marriage. There's very few who do. But when he is married, it is a one-woman man. And before marriage, it would be the same thing. That's where Matthew comes into play. Not given into anything, but preparing himself for that one woman. Paul continues. He says, temperate. Well, what of the instruction to be temperate? Outside of the reference to the weather, we don't usually use the word temperate very much anymore, especially of persons. It's an older term usually used to refer to moderation and sobriety with regard to wine or strong drink. There's also a figurative usage. And in fact, if you look down in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3 here, you see that it talks about not being addicted to wine. And since it gets very explicit there, it's unlikely that both of these terms are referring to that concrete image of alcohol. And instead, the term here, where it's first used, where it talks about temperance, is figurative. It's referring to mental sobriety. It's a common usage as well. It's mental sobriety, being clear-headed in decision-making, careful, showing moderation, able to guard one's tongue. It describes someone who, they have a balanced judgment of things. They aren't prone to jumping to assumptions. It's one who takes the time to carefully evaluate a situation. It's one who applies the wisdom of Solomon in hearing both sides. Proverbs 18, 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him, until the other side is heard. This type of leader arrives at decisions and convictions after careful thought and consideration. They're not rash in their behavior. And you'll notice both with temperance, prudence, and respectable, you're going to notice that they're all facets of self-control. They all have elements of self-control within them. And so closely related to temperance is prudence, a word here that embodies both wisdom and self-control, control of one's behavior, their impulses, and emotions. Is the person who at times may be labeled as boring because they don't go along with the fun or the risky choice. But this person is not a double-minded man. It's not someone who's easily blown and tossed by the wind of popular opinion or swayed by peer pressure. This is someone you go to for advice and counsel when everyone else seems to be controlled by emotions and rhetoric. As Alexander Strauch notes in his book on biblical eldership, to be prudent is to be discreet, able to keep an objective perspective in the face of problems and disagreements. Prudence tempers or helps prevent pride, authoritarianism, and self-justification. Prudence helps to keep a shepherd a shepherd. Keeps them from developing that authoritarian bent. And then respectable. You continue to see a logic or flow to the apostles' description of the character here of the shepherd and leader in the church. Because here is a, yet another manifestation of self-control, this time with regard to proper and orderly behavior. In fact, if you were to take a left, a page or two in your Bible, you'd see in 1 Timothy 2.9 this same word used. And there it's used, and it's translated as proper or respectable, used to describe clothing or modesty and discreetness. Reminding us that, once again, 
take our glasses off for a second. These characteristics are not only for elders. Again, these are the bare minimum for elders, but as we go through each of these things, in fact, we read it this morning. I don't know if you noticed this. As we were reading Hebrews 13, 1 through 16, you look at all of those calls to the church and you start to realize they sound a lot like the expectations of an elder. And that's the point. Elders are set to set the example and that this is what the church should look like. But the exhortation is all of us to do this. This respectability describes a person who maintains orderliness in their life. It's the person who does not draw attention to themselves by either their opulence, their ornateness, or by their disheveled life. It goes both ways. It's not trying to draw undue attention to your life. Which requires self-control, requires discipline, requires care. All of these have made sense. You can begin to see how they pertain to being above reproach, the importance of them. This next one, though, maybe it's a little bit of a surprise, at least when we stop and think about it. Hospitable. Why hospitality? Of all the things you could talk about in a leader, why hospitality? You notice it didn't show up on any of those pastoral resume searches. I mean, what if I don't have the spiritual gift of hospitality? Surely there's an exception clause here, right? I asked Elise permission to use this example, but when we got married, you know, I wanted to have people into the home. And she said, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. And she needed to work on hospitality. I needed to work on gentleness because my response was, well, we're going to work on that. <laughs> so we've both worked on our respective issues. And we've both grown in those areas. But we're all to demonstrate hospitality. Some are going to be more prone to it. It may come more naturally and easier for others. And so while it's true that some have the spiritual gift, all are to pursue it. Paul exhorts all Christians in Rome, in fact, to pursue hospitality in Romans 12, 13. Peter writes, be hospitable to one another without complaint in 1 Peter 4, 9. Even all the way back into the Old Testament, Job highlights the importance of hospitality. In fact, it was when he was defending himself against unjust accusations, against ill character, he said in Job 31, 32, the stranger has not lodged outside for I have opened my doors to the traveler. I have shown hospitality. That is a mark of my life. And perhaps most well known, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 2, again, we read this morning, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. It's a fun passage to think about and talk about. Now, hospitality can be uncomfortable, right? When you invite persons into your home, guess what happens? People learn that you're not perfect. They knew it conceptually, now they know it concretely. You're not perfect. Hospitality is inconvenient in the sense of it doesn't wait on your schedule. Hospitality means being flexible. It's an example of preferring others. Not only that, if they have children, then inevitably things are going to get broken. Your house is going to get a bit messier when you invite them over. It's what it really going to truly highlight do you love persons more than possessions. It'll highlight do you love people more than your schedule and your plans. 
Alexandra Strauch again notes, this hospitality cannot be done from a distance. Speaking directly to elders, to shepherds and leaders, he says, it can't be done with just simply a smile and a handshake on Sunday morning or through a superficial visit. It means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, and serving spirit. Whereas a lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfishness, of lifeless and loveless Christianity. Those who love hospitality love people and are concerned about them. If the local church's leaders are inhospitable, the local church will also be inhospitable and indifferent toward the needs of others. And yet, as, as important as hospitality is, I really wonder how many churches have considered the qualification of hospitality when choosing shepherds and leaders. Well, so far in this list, we have not seen anything about being visionary, charismatic, holding a seminary degree, and yet these always seem to find their ways into the expectations and the job searches churches, of churches when they're looking for leaders. But this next one, able to teach, or as we see in Titus 1.9, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Here's where we get to the seminary degree, right? They must have a seminary degree. Must mean years of theological training, acumen, ability to explain every nuance of systematic theology, correct? Well, no. It certainly requires that the shepherd be able to feed the sheep. That is, teach the scriptures. But nowhere do we see that they have to have a seminary degree. Now, before you think that I don't really care about theological training, I have three seminary degrees. I care very much about good theological training. I think it's very important. But it doesn't take a seminary to get that training. A major part of shepherding is ensuring the sheep are fed and pastured well. So being able to teach is absolutely necessary. But I have known so many men without seminary degrees who know more of Scripture and can more acutely apply God's Word to life than men who have spent years studying theology. In fact, the, one of the men who mentored me, he made it through a year and a half, almost two years of seminary before he was called to pastor and shepherd a church. And I remember he would always tell me he got his master's of duh instead of his MDiv. But he was remarkable in his ability to not only interpret and understand Scripture, but to be able to apply it to life. To be able to refute those who contradict. What God requires is that an elder or leader of the church must have a knowledge of Scripture to apply it to answer questions, to exhort, to encourage. He must be able to open his Bible and instruct others from it. It requires a deep and ongoing knowledge of Scripture, a readiness to teach, and an ability to communicate. One of my dear friends has no theological training whatsoever, and yet I would be hard-pressed to find any seminary graduate, especially any freshly-minted seminary graduate, who could even hold a candle to him in biblical knowledge. Another good friend of mine knows, is better equipped in the Greek and Hebrew languages, plus a few others, than most, if not any seminary graduate I've met, certainly at the MDiv level, it's the Masters of Divinity. So not being able to attend seminary is not an excuse 
And it doesn't mean one must be eloquent. It doesn't mean they need to be a great orator or have a, an amazing dynamic personality. There are very few, in fact, very few pastors who will ever be like this. Not everyone is going to be an R.C. Spruill or a John MacArthur or a J.C. Ryle or a Charles Spurgeon. There's a reason that they stand out uniquely in history because they are unique. There's very few people who are that good of communicators or at least that dynamic. But the elder must be able to clearly explain the Bible and apply it to life. Paul elaborates further on what this looks like in Titus 1.9 where he says, The shepherd must hold fast the faithful word and refute those who contradict. To hold fast means to be devoted to something, to cling to it. The shepherd of the church believes and demonstrates both the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. It will always come back to, Thus saith the Lord. Not only that, but they protect the sheep, refuting those who contradict. The wise shepherd knows his sheep. He pays attention to them, wants to know what they're reading, what they're hearing, and works hard to ensure that it aligns with Scripture, that there's opportunities to discuss. I was reading of one pastor this week who, he was caught up in a lot of debates on social media. This is a whole conversation about debating on social media to begin with. But he during a sermon, makes a joke, and it falls flat. Nobody even understood what he was referencing. And he realized, and I appreciate his recognition of this and humility in demonstrating this, is he said, I realized I was preaching to my Twitter followers, not to my congregation. I didn't know my people. This, this issue didn't affect them. They didn't even have a clue what I was talking about. The shepherd is aware of what's affecting his people, able to bring the word to apply in their life, able to help refute, contradict, and address the issues they are dealing with. I love discussing different theological systems and topics, but it's always going to take a back seat to what is immediately present in your life. As we look at these different qualifications, it becomes really readily apparent that we've heard these things before. We've seen these things. The expectation we have for a leader, for an elder of the church, for a pastor of the church, it's a high standard. It's not an impossible standard because we don't expect perfection, but we do expect this to be an ongoing quality and characteristic of the one who leads and is called to shepherd the people of God. We're going to continue working through these different qualifications, these different lists. But once again, I want us to take a moment and pause and turn our attention back to ourselves. To asking a couple of questions and applying this to our life. It's really taking off those shepherding glasses. And I want to walk back through these qualifications in brief and ask you some questions. Certainly, be asking this of the leaders of Canton Bible. Be asking it of potential leaders. Don't stop asking it of current leaders. You don't stop expecting these things once someone is made an elder. But these exhortations to godly living are not just for leaders or for those who are aspiring to leadership. It's for each of us. It's for every one of you sitting here this morning. 
So how are you doing? Husbands and wives, how are you doing at being wholly devoted to your spouse? Have you stopped to think about and do you realize that your marriage is a testimony not only to children and grandchildren, but to the world around us? Does your love and your faithfulness, your devotion to your spouse, communicate your love for God? Can you honestly say that your marriage is a testimony to the world around you? It should be. But what about temperance, prudence, respectability? Is your life marked by these things? Or are you someone that's prone to jump to conclusions? When you hear a bit of news about someone, are you quick to share it? Or do you pause and consider the accuracy of it, the edification it will or will not bring? Are you quick to speak and slow to listen? Or have you developed the discipline to cease from talking and opening your ears? Again, that's another aspect of these things, something that you would absolutely expect of a shepherd is someone who is able to sit there and, and listen and hear you out. There was a pastor who was counseling one time and he was situated so that he could see the clock behind him and someone came in who was given to verbosity like to talk a lot and they kept going and going and he was watching this clock he got about 45 minutes in and decided to interject at that point and the response was can you just let me talk are you developing an ear to listen are you better at asking questions or offering unwanted advice I think we all like to offer advice to help people. What we're pretty bad at is going in and asking questions, getting to know persons, developing an understanding of the situation, making sure that the, question, the advice we offer, if we even offer advice, that it provides edification and grace to those who hear it. Is it building people up? Is it actually addressing the wound? How many of us would go to a doctor who would not ask questions and listen to us? We walk in, they said, no, no, you don't need to say anything further. Here's your prescription and sends you out the door. And yet we treat relationships with one another that way. Certainly you do not want any minister of the church, any elder, pastor, shepherd of the church acting in such a way. How about hospitality? How are you doing in that area? How many of you willing to be inconvenienced in opening up your homes to others and not just being willing to and sitting passively back and say, well, it's been five years, nobody's asked to come over, so we're good. No, are you actively trying to open up your home and invite others in and welcome them in? Your home doesn't need to be perfect to show hospitality. In fact, it may be refreshing for a sleep-deprived mom with young kids who's barely holding it together to see that your home's not perfect. You ever thought about that? That may actually be an encouragement to them. Growing up, uh, Elisa's pastor, her, his wife, would, when she would invite especially young moms over, she would purposely leave out dirty dishes. 
so that those young moms would see you don't have to have a perfect home. You're not failing when you aren't even getting enough sleep to keep your eyes open. And likewise, when it comes to being able to teach, we often relegate this to the leadership, don't we? But how many of you are not put into a position where you've got to teach at some point in your life? Whether it be your children, the children of others, an opportunity to speak to coworkers, to friends. We all must be students of Scripture. Because we're all teachers at some level, whether to friends, children, or coworkers, we're going to have opportunities to teach, to talk about God's word. Are you studying it so that you're ready to give an answer? To anyone who asks you at any time, and are you able to apply the word of God to their life? To, cor to correct them where correction is necessary. To encourage them, to exhort them where necessary. Well, these qualities must certainly increase in our lives. But as we've talked about, they must already be there to some level, hopefully to a great level, in those that we choose to be leaders of the church. You can begin to see how weighty this list is. It continues on. I want to pause here from this list momentarily because I want to, I'm going to jump out of this list for a moment because I'm going to give you something very practical I want you to do as we're talking about leaders. We've been setting a high expectation. Many of you know that we're considering Grady Cook to be an elder here at Canton Bible. The goal is that by the end of the month, we'll have taken time to have gotten to know him, to spend time with him. To uh, Many of us have done that for the past couple of years. But I want to ask you to do something one of the things that you look at in Scripture is when a church is considering, when even elders are considering another elder in the New Testament, we find this more than one time, the people take the time to fast and pray. Now, we're about to go eat, so now's not the right time for that. But I want to ask you over this month, as you're considering these lists of questions, as you're considering these different things, I want you to find time to fast and pray. Not asking you to fast for a week or go on a 40-day fast, just a meal. If health reasons prevent it, do it with something else. Something you would have done, maybe it was a show you were going to watch, a book you were going to read. Put it aside and just spend some time praying. And I want you to pray. I want you to pray over these lists of qualifications that we're going to continue going over over the next couple of weeks. And pray that for him, pray for his wife, pray for your current leaders, and pray for the rest of the body that you would give discernment as we look at choosing both Grady as well as other leaders in this church. So that's my request of you, that you would do that here over the next two to three weeks as we go through this process. By the way, as serious as it is, this should be a joyful time. It's a neat time in the church to see the way God is working, the gifts he has given. The Spirit is raising people up. I mean, we've seen it in our music ministry. We're seeing it in service to the children. We're seeing it, I'm seeing it in hospitality. I'm seeing it in many different areas, and it is an exciting time in the life of our body. But it's good to be serious about it. And it's good to make sure we're stopping and asking, what does God want us to do? What does he want us to consider? How does he want us to think about these things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how clear you are.
with regard to the qualities of the expectations of the shepherds of the church. You're under shepherds. Father, for such an important position, one that feeds and protects and leads and sets an example, we are thankful that you have not left us in doubt. You have not made it unclear about what you desire. Help us to be faithful in applying that in our choice of leaders of the church. Help us to be faithful in growing and living that out day by day in our own lives. Thank you for this body. Thank you for your spirit, which is so active and at work. Father, help us to work to, to live by the spirit, to walk by the spirit in this choice, in this decision. We pray this in your name. Amen.